Had to be careful there. Didn't want to get swept up in the children's church rush. That would have been embarrassing. But please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We've already read what I consider to be my passage for this morning, but I do want to focus on the verse that um, the passage pivots on and what I will be focusing on this morning. It's 1 Peter 1 verse 13. We're going to read God's Word and we'll pray together. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, We come to You now asking for You to strengthen our vision on You through Your Word and unto Your Son. And with hope fixed, we pray that You would be reforming and transforming our daily lives here on earth unto that day and for Your glory in Him. Amen. It goes without saying that vision is important. You're all very thankful for it, I'm sure. But here's a question for you. What do the following occupations have in common? An airline pilot, a secret service agent, a jet fighter, an astronaut, and a firefighter. Probably were surprised by that last one. All of these occupations prefer that you have good vision. Matter of fact, in choosing candidates for these careers, businesses and managers are prejudiced towards those with, with naturally perfect vision. And I got all of that from a website that is really interested in selling you laser surgery. <laughs> now, obviously, some of these careers you, you can have corrected vision for, but the point is still the same, and I hope it makes sense to you. Good vision is important. You want people in these careers to have Good vision. And you you can understand why. If you were on an airplane, enjoying your, you know, beverage, and you hear the following announcement over the intercom, you'd be concerned. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. You, uh, you probably just noticed a slight bit of turbulence back there. Uh, that was, that was my co-pilot's fault. Uh, he was trying to hand me his, or my cup of coffee. Uh, 
He didn't know I wasn't looking. As you can guess, uh, I jumped. Then he jumped. Then both of us lost our prescription glasses. (laughs) And simultaneously smashed them with our feet. Uh, In all the hubbub there, we finally managed to switch on the autopilot, though. Uh, so you've got nothing else to worry about for the remainder of your flight. Enjoy, sit back and relax. Nothing else should concern you, at least until it's time to land. (laughs) No, nobody wants to have a pilot with vision problems. Physical vision is, is crucial, important for many occupations. And this morning, my point is simple. Your spiritual vision, your spiritual eyes are important for how you live and for the life that you were called to live following after Christ. You need eyes, spiritual eyes, strengthened eyes to see. There's a famous phrase that's meant to mock Christians. It says, those Christians, they are so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. I love how Steve Lawson kind of rephrases it. He says this, You'll never be of any earthly good until you are truly heavenly minded. That's the point of the sermon today. That's what 1 Peter 1.13 is telling us today. We need to be rightly heavenly minded if we are to be of any earthly good. So for our message this morning, I'm going to break it down into three parts. We're going to look at the mandate for this. We're going to look at the method. And then we're going to look at the motive. You can look at it this way. These are three parts of spiritual vision that lead to transformed living. Three parts of spiritual vision that lead to transformed living. Let's look first at the mandate. The mandate. You can see that. Fix your hope completely. Now just, just a reminder here. The, the letter that we're in, 1 Peter, has a purpose. The purpose of 1 Peter is to prepare the readers for fire, for trial, for tribulation. And Peter is saying, in your present suffering, or in your future suffering, you need to live out the true grace of God. In your suffering, he exhorts, you have been given grace from God to live it out for the glory of God. Don't waste your suffering, in other words. And you can kind of see that this is the tone of the letter. 1 Peter 5, 12, he kind of says this. At the end of this letter, he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This letter is about the grace of God enabling the people of God to live in difficult situations for God. That's what 1 Peter's about. Exhortations to live under God's true grace. And if I was to break up the letter, I'd break it up into three parts. Um, chapter 1, 3, all the way through two eleven would be suffer obediently, surrounded by God's mercy. 
You see that in verse 3 of chapter 1. And you also see God's mercy again coming up in chapter 2, verse 10. You, you should suffer obediently because you are surrounded by God's mercy to do so. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through 4.11, we see Peter talking about how we should be suffering willingly, filled with God's purposes. And he talks about all these difficult, tricky relationships that you may be in and called to live out your Christian life in. But we should suffer in those hard situations willingly because we are filled with a sense of God's purpose. I've been placed here. I've been given grace to obey here. But I have a a purpose here, a focus here. A reason for being here, even in hard situations. He's talking to slaves. He's talking to citizens of a wicked government. He's talking to wives, perhaps, with unbelieving husbands, or husbands with unbelieving wives. We all have a purpose, he says, and that is to show the world an example of Jesus Christ. You see this all throughout this middle section of 1 Peter. For example... Chapter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. Suffer like Christ. Show Christ in your suffering. Or, chapter 3, verse 18, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring you to God. You are always living with this purpose. How can I show Christ? Right? We, we suffer willingly, filled with God's purpose. And then in the last part of, of 1 Peter, chapter 4, 12 through 5, 11, as I understand it, we are to suffer faithfully, Strengthened with God's viewpoint. Suffer faithfully, strengthened with God's viewpoint. And, and you can see, you look at the world in the second half or the, second, the last third of First Peter, you look at the world through God's eyes. For 4.12, you're not surprised by fiery trials because you see this and in how God is working out His purposes in you and even sanctifying you through these trials and fiery troubles. And you, the real viewpoint of God, though, that Peter points out is this end-timed mindset. What, when God comes back, He's going to change all. He's going to make everything right. 5 verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. In other, in other words, suffer faithfully, being strengthened by a viewpoint on God. But all of this is just demonstrating the true grace of God. Show the true grace of God in your suffering. And and if we go back to chapter 1, verse 13, which is our verse, here, 113, comes after 12 verses of just straight-up doctrinal declarations. You know what I mean by that? Peter has been talking about the glories of our salvation but he hasn't yet once talked about what that means for us. And now, at chapter 1, verse 13, he finally, as you could say, gets to it. He finally talks about what this means to you. 
he finally uses his first command in the entire letter. And I would say everything before this, all of that doctrine is leading, is, is building to this point. And everything that comes after this is, is flowing out of this point. Chapter 1, verse 13 is kind of important. What's the command? What's the mandate? It is fix your hope fully. Fix your hope completely. This is a, a kind of command that has a certain significance to it. You could say it's, it's like this is a priority one kind of command. There's an intensity behind the way he even says this. It's almost like he's saying in the way he even speaks this word, make this most important to you. And, and the word itself carries a lot of authority as well. Fix your hope. This idea of having full confidence or full conviction in something. Put your confidence in it. ESV says, set your hope fully. A New Living Translation says, put all your hope here. A New King James Version says, rest your hope fully here. There is a sense of full, full commitment in these words. You know, a poker term. Go all in. Put all of your chips in the middle here. Put all of your eggs in this basket Place all of your assets on this stock. Have full commitment. But there's also a sense of full confidence as well. Why do we have this all-in mentality? It's because of hope. Now, hope is a rather cheap word in our day and age. And I have news for you. If you look it up, kind of in the ancient world, it kind of was a cheap word back then as well too. It kind of meant a lot of the same things we mean by hope when the people spoke about hope. It, 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 mean, it meant like this kind of hope. I hope my day goes well. I, I hope I don't get really, really sick in my life. I hope I don't really have to go through a bad shipwreck. We don't speak that way. I hope I can enjoy a little pleasure in this life. I, I hope my life can remain calm and normal. I hope my kids don't disappoint me. I hope people like me. That's exactly how we speak about hope. Just like the tin man and the cowardly lion speak about hope. I hope my strength holds out. I hope... Your tail holds out. It's a very uncertain kind of hope. It might happen. Hope it does. Might not. It's an uncertain but generally positive outlook on life. That is the best our world can offer when we talk about hope. But then the Bible comes along and transforms the meaning of this word and packs it with powerful theological expectation. There's no sense when the Bible uses the word hope of uncertainty, of insecurity, or of doubt. This hope is sure. It's certain. When the Bible speaks about hope, it is very different than the way the world speaks about hope or the way we might speak about hope. Proverbs 10.28, for example, says this, the expectation of the righteous is gladness, but, look at this, the hope of the wicked will perish. 
Or Psalm 146, verse 5, How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God. Psalm 84, 12, O Yahweh of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts, hopes in you. 1 Timothy 4.10 For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Notice the difference there. What's the difference between the world's kind of hope and the Bible's kind of hope? It's the object. It's the object of that hope. Right? Matter of fact, the Bible even says the world's hope will always perish, right? Because the object of the world's hope, the object of the wicked's hope, is weak, will not last, insignificant. But the believer has hope because the believer has hope in the eternal, powerful God. In other words, you as believers can live differently Because you hope differently. Sometimes one of the best things for your faith, honestly, is to go to a funeral. That's really what you need. You really need to see your life through the lens of a funeral. A couple weeks ago, or a week ago, yesterday, we had a memorial service for a sweet sister in Christ, Janice Jones, wife of the late Floyd Jones, and listening to all the testimony about her, and there was copious amounts. I can say, categorically, that she is or was a living illustration of the biblical Tabitha, who... Acts 9.36 spoke of saying, this woman was full of good works and charity, which she continually did. You don't come away from a Janice Jones memorial service and not come away with that perspective. I mean, even when you have a memorial service and you have daughters-in-law standing up after you are gone to praise you, you know you did something right. But my unashamed favorite part of the entire memorial service was when her son stood up and said this. A lot of people have been, you know, trying to encourage us, comfort us, and and tell us that, you know, oh, I'm so happy for Janice. She gets to see Floyd again. And the son just kind of looked at us and said, I understand what you're saying, but let me just be clear. Floyd wasn't the person my mom was excited about seeing. She was excited about seeing Jesus. I'm sure she eventually found Floyd. (laughs) The way you hope transforms the way you live. How's your vision? How do you see your vision as illustrated through your living. What do you see? What is your hope? Notice verse 13. There's a therefore there. This is, uh, once again, what Peter is building up to. Fix your vision. Therefore, fix your vision. But what, is he, what has he been working towards? 
so far. In, in chapter 1, 3 through 5, he's been talking about our salvation, which has been kept by the power of God for us. We have powerful hope, even through death. In chapter 1, 6 through 9, he's been talking about our eagerness that, that believers already experience, even though trials come. I, I love chapter 1, verse 8. Even, even though you do not see him, you love him. You believe in Him. You hope in Him. You have this eagerness coming out of you because of God's power at work in you through the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, chapter 1, 10 through 12, he talks about our salvation kind of in, in terms like this. Your salvation is the envy of the neighborhood. The prophets are looking into it and wondering... The angels are talking about it. Your salvation, the great things that God has done for you, are incredibly astounding to all. Therefore, verse 13, hope. Fix your hope squarely. Fix your hope certainly, firmly. But how do we do this? How do we, how do we fix our hope? I'm sure when you read that word completely, you're like, I'm not doing that completely. My life shows weakness in my hope, not certainty in my hope. How do we strengthen our spiritual vision? Notice here, I'm not talking about how do you fix your vision, how do you create spiritual vision. For that, you need the regenerating power of God through the Holy Spirit, which results in obedience and faith and repentance. That's what creates spiritual vision. You need to go to the eye physician of the soul for that. What I'm talking about is you, believer, who feel weak in your hope. How do you strengthen your hope? That's what Peter wants to talk to us about this morning. How do you strengthen your hope? That leads us to the second part, the method. The method. See the mandate, and now we see the, the method. How do we as believers with weak hope strengthen our vision? And here it is, here's the answer, by our mindset. By the way in which we choose to think. By where your mind chooses to dwell. By the content of what you fill the meditation of your heart with. By your mindset. You'll see two phrases there. Verse 13. Notice them. They're kind of strange to our ears. First one, having girded your minds for action. And the second one, being sober in spirit. What is Peter trying to say here? Well, just notice, in your English, you see these are, these are both phrases that are placed before the, the, the command, fix your hope completely. And, and that's how it is in Greek too, which usually means he is trying to emphasize these two phrases. He's putting them in front of the verb, which is unnatural. He's trying to emphasize these things so you'll, you'll, you'll catch them. Both of these are modifying phrases. They are modifying or explaining the command, the mandate. 
how you do this. How do you fix your hope so completely? Here he answers them emphatically. It's like, it's like when uh, you give those keys of a motorized vehicle, tons of metal empowered by a motor. You give those keys to your seemingly adolescent son who you're sure just three weeks ago you changed the last diapers for. And you, foolish you, willingly put yourself in the passenger seat of that same vehicle. You have no brake pedal in the passenger seat. You can grab the steering wheel, but that will only make it worse. You sit in the passenger seat, and all you have is the power of the human language to protect you. So what do you say to your son? Listen. I don't care what you do. Just keep this car between those lines. As my grandpa used to say, stay between the ditches. That's all you got to do. Just keep the car on the road. But that's not good enough. This is what you say. You say, please, keep the car on the road by holding onto the steering wheel with two hands. I know you've seen me do the one-handed drive. I don't want to see that today. I know you've seen me hold a soda in my hand while I'm doing the one-handed drive. I don't want to see that today. You keep both hands. I want to see your hands white from lack of blood because you're holding them so firmly. But if you're a wise dad, you'll also know you don't want your kids to be just looking straight down in front of them on the road. That's a great way to go off the road. So you also say, keep the car on the road by holding tightly to the steering wheel and looking ahead of you. Looking down the road. That will naturally keep the car on the road. If you look right in front of you, the car will zig all over the place. But if you look, you know, a couple car lengths ahead of you, you will drive smoother, straighter. Notice, that, that's, that's exactly the same kind of language that Peter's using here. He is talking about how we fix our hope. By girding up our minds and by being sober in spirit. But these are strange phrases. What do they mean? Well, Peter is using vivid ancient words, language, to communicate. And I'm going to now convert these ancient illustrations into hopefully contemporary illustrations that will help you. What what does this mean, having girded your minds for action? Well, think about it this way. Keep your working clothes on. Fix your hope completely by keeping your work clothes on. I assume that all of you have various sets of clothes. Some clothes you wear for 
going to social events, church, parties, and other clothes you use for changing the oil underneath your car. And never shall the two mix. Working clothes are good. Working clothes are important. Working clothes are needed. Right? In the ancient world, you you had to do this thing called get yourself ready for work, which would be to, to gird up your loins or to gird up your robes, right? You, if you were working in the field, you wanted to you kind of secure this long flowing robe into your belt so that you could move around and, and pick things. If you were a soldier, you also needed to tuck that long robe into your belt so you could be nimble and you could be agile. I love this part of, of a sermon that MacArthur preached on the armor of God where he's talking about this concept of, you know, tucking in the robe to your belt. And he says, you can't, you can't be messing with your skirt flying in your face while you're trying to kill Amalekites. It's just, you, you need that to be locked away and secured. In other words, you need to be ready. You need to be continually ready in your mind, girding up the loins of your mind. That's what he's talking about here. Don't live based on your feelings or your passions like you used to live. You see that in, in chapter 1, verse 14. No, be a thinker, be engaged, be actively thinking, be constantly going through life saying to yourself, how would God think about this? Or how does God want me to think about this? You need to cultivate a biblical mind and a biblical mentality in every area of your life that is keeping your work clothes on. Don't let yourself slip into your loungewear mentality. Don't be just relaxing. You've got to be thinking all the time. That's how you fix your hope completely. But some of you might say, well, seems like most of my problems are caused by too much thinking. doesn't seem like a really good move for me to be thinking all the time. No, I would, I would suggest to you, you're not exhausted, you're not worried, you're not anxious. You're not overwhelmed, you're not overworked because of too much thinking. You're actually this way because of not enough right thinking. You've got to have truth in your thinking. Otherwise, it is weak thinking. The other day, yesterday in fact, my wife, in the middle of the afternoon, asked me to brew another half pot of coffee. And I said, of course, dear. I wanted some too. But I noticed that there was still a little bit left in the bottom of the coffee maker. So I was like, I don't want to waste this coffee. So I'm going to heat this coffee up. Well, I also grind more coffee because I'm kind of thirsty for coffee. And then I will put uh, that reheated coffee. Sorry for all of you coffee enthusiasts. For me, it's just a necessity. That's all. Okay. I'm going to put that reheated coffee back in there and then I'm going to brew fresh coffee on top of it. And it'll be more coffee. And I ground the beans and I put it in one of those new little, like, you know, little, little basket things in there. And I got distracted. I think it was one of my kids' fault. 
But end of the story, my wife comes to me later and says, this coffee is awful. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, it's really weak. It looks weak and it tastes weak. It's like drinking ca- caffeinated tea. Oh, that's a crime. I may, not be, I may not be that kind of a coffee drinker, but I'm definitely not a tea coffee drinker. I take a drink. Oh, my word. It's very weak. I, Serena, I'm sure that I, I measured out things. I put a little bit of co- old coffee in the bottom. Maybe that's the reason why it's tasting bad. I'm, I don't understand why this is so weak. And I flip open the lid of the coffee maker, and there it is, my little, my little, little whatever that thing is called, the white holder for your coffee beans, empty, but soaked through with boiling water. And there was my grinder filled with beans. So it was like an 80-20 coffee hot water mix. And I tell all of you that to say, you may be thinking, but if the Word of God isn't permeating your thinking, it is weak thinking. It is powerless thinking. It is empty thinking. And, of course, the more you think, the worse your problems will get. No, we need to gird our minds with God's Word. We need to keep our working clothes on through God's Word. Be ready in season and out of season. That brings us to our second illustration. Being sober in spirit. Being sober in spirit. How about this? Live like you are a time traveler on the Titanic. Why would you want to be a time traveler on the Titanic, you ask? It's a metaphor. Live like you are a time traveler on the Titanic. Be sober in spirit. Sober-minded, of course, refers to a, I think, a kind of a sudden alertness that comes from uh, an, an, an awareness of danger that's close by. You're suddenly awake. You know, there's, there's two ways to stay alert on a road trip, right? There's the highly caffeinated way. And then there's the other way, my dad's favorite way, to... Uh, be awakened and alert by the sound of the rumble strips on the side of the highway. You know what I'm talking about later, maybe. That's sober-mindedness. You are suddenly made awake by fear, by a sense of danger around you, by a knowledge of what's really happening. You are sober-minded. What does it mean to be a time traveler on the Titanic? It means that you live with a different mind than anyone else. You have insider information. You're not going to go around enjoying your time like everybody else is going around enjoying their time. Chapter 4, verse 4 says this, In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them to the same excess of dissipation. And they malign you even, right? You do not spend your time living like everybody else lives because you know stuff. This ship is going down. And I want to spend my time on this ship making sure as many people on this ship are aware and ready and have life preservers and know where the nearest lifeboats are. 
I'm not going to waste my time because I am sober-minded. I've been awakened by the danger facing all of us. The ultimate end that is coming to this ship. I'm going to live like a time traveler on the Titanic. I would say, and you probably can guess this, right? When you think differently, you live differently. But this is not just any kind of thinking. This is the kind of thinking that comes from meditation. Not just knowledge, but meditation on God's Word. Thinking through God's Word. You could say meditation is affection setting and directing thinking. I would exhort you to listen to our Student Ministries Winter Retreat 2024 sermons. We talked about this. Our our guest speaker, Chris Johnson from Berean Bible Church, did an amazing job exhorting us to the concept of biblical meditation. And I just wanted to share some of his points with you. In, In principle, meditation is this. It is meditating on God's promises. And meditation on God's promises are God's supreme means of grace given to His children. And he, he, he kind of broke that down from the Puritans. The Puritans saw meditation as the hospital of the soul. Are you weak in your thinking, in your mind? You need to go to the hospital of the soul, and that is meditating on God's promises. And this is not an option. Scripture commands meditation, in fact. Matter of fact, he went on to say, meditation is powerful. And he quoted a Puritan saying this, Satan is fine with all of your Bible reading. Satan is even fine with prayer. As long as those two things do not include meditation. Meditation enjoys the Bible. Meditation fuels and fills the prayers of God's people. Without meditation, your prayers will be dry and short and empty and weak, and your mind will be weak. And the simple point is, right? Here it is. Here's the choice for you. If you want, (coughs) if you want to be ruled by anxiety, if you want to be defeated by impurity, if you want to be controlled by fear, the fear of man, if you want to be weakened by your sinful anger, if you want to be helpless against every storm, if you want to be sinking under every trial, if you want to be alone, cold, and helpless like the disciples were outside of the tomb, if you want to live like Christ is still dead, locked up in the upper room trying to protect yourself, if you want to live like this, then don't meditate. Because that is the kind of life that doesn't meditate. In other words, you don't just fix your hope naturally. You have to actively be setting your mind on certain hope through the meditation of God's Word. That's the method. The mandate is fix your hope. The method is by setting your mind. But what promises, what motivations does Peter give us 
for doing this. Besides what we've already talked about, let's move to the third part of our sermon, the motive. Fix your hope completely, he says, on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter Peter wants this hope to be filling your minds. The the phrase is, is literally just packed Hope in the uh, being brought to you kind of grace. It's, it's, it's a package deal. When you look ahead to Christ, you, you get grace with it. It's being brought to you grace. And it's also, you see it there, it's, it's not a future tense in the way he expresses it. He expresses it in the, in the present tense. Fix your hope on the being brought to you grace. It's like a present tense thing. When Scripture does this, when it speaks about future things in in present tense verbs, it it says this in order to kind of ensure the reality of these things. It is so certain, it's as if we're speaking about it in the present tense. You say, I'm rich. I've won the lottery. In present tense words. But you haven't received a check yet. A check with a radically reduced rate than what you thought you were going to get. Thanks, Uncle Sam. But you still speak about it in present tense terms because you're so excited and because it's so certain in your mind. That is what Peter is saying here. This is a being brought to you grace. It's a grace already present. It is so certain because it is biblical hope. Now, in ways, Peter has already broken it down. We're, we're already re- experiencing so many graces. As chapter 1, verse 3, God has already opened our minds and our hearts to be reborn in faith. Chapter 1, verse 8, God is already fueling our love and our faith towards Christ already through the Holy Spirit. And God does increasingly solidify our hope whenever we open God's Word before us. Right? We have great grace in our life. I could go on. There are lists and lists of ways God's grace is already present. But none of these present experiences, you know, can hold a candle to the being brought to you kind of grace that Peter is talking about here. Uh, This grace is when your faith will become sight. Uh, This grace is when your love will be perfected. This grace is when your hope will be hope, but with handles. Certain, secure hope. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is referring to His his bodily return, His coming in glory. Chapter 2, verse 12 speaks of this. It speaks of this as the event at which Many who will be saved through the witness of the suffering church will glorify God. When He comes, great glory and praise will be His. 1 Peter 5.10, we've already talked about this. This is the moment in the future when the God of all grace Himself will appear and will essentially make all things right. This is God's return. Fix your hope on this Be motivated by this. Everything will make sense then. Simple question. What strengthens your hope? What fuels your life with affectionate faith that results in affectionate living for God's glory? 
It's anything. It's anything that fixes your mind on your beloved Savior. In truth. Just, just some simple applications just to send you home. What are ways to do this? What are ways to fix my eyes on Christ and change my mind and strengthen my hope? Number one, try reading Scripture to see and love Christ, to see and love Jesus. Plan on reading the Gospel of John ten times before the summer ends. That would help. Maybe think about reading Hebrews 20 times before summer starts. That would also help. Say in your reading, I want to see and love you more so that I can obey you more, but help me to see you more, Jesus. And that brings us to a, a second way to do this. Listen to sermons on your Savior in his life and in his ministry. Christ's life is, is clearly what the Bible wants to show us Four Gospels are being communicated to us because the life of Christ is so needed for us. And on top of that, we've got Colossians and Revelation and Hebrew. But, but we need more than just physical understanding. We need affections to be sparked. And I'm a big believer in preaching, not because I'm the preacher, but because I need someone else to be talking to me about Jesus. That is what fuels my affections for Him. Maybe you could, number third, learn specific hymns by heart about Christ. There's nothing more powerful for young kids and embarrassing than the sound of their father boldly, triumphantly, and off-key singing hymns by heart. And can it be that I should gain an interest in your precious blood? His robes for mine? What a glorious exchange. Before the throne of God above, I have this strong and perfect plea. What if you memorized those songs? And what if you led your family in those songs from your heart? How about this? Here's another way to fuel your hope. Tell someone of your hope. You know this. It's a fact. I've never met a Christian that wasn't rejoicing in Christ after they shared the gospel with someone else. That fuels your hope. How about this? Purify your vision. Purify your vision. 1 Peter 2, 1-3 essentially says if you have sin of animosity or anger or jealousy or have hypocrisy in your heart, if you have relationship sins like this, it gets in the way of the joy that you have in God's Word. It's like eating white bread, sandwich bread, white sandwich bread. Uh, you know, piece after piece after piece two hours before Thanksgiving dinner. It destroys the feast. So purify your vision. Live a life of faith and repentance. Never let a day go by if you think you have sinned against a brother or a sister. 
Or here's another way to fuel your hope. And be with God's people. Isn't church one of the most precious gifts that he gives? We get to be with imperfect reflections of him all the time. And that can be a bad thing. But it can also be a very good thing. I need to be with people who love Christ too. My mind is prone to be swept into the kind of fellowship I enjoy. This is what we see in Psalm 73, right? The psalmist was most depressed and worldly in his thinking because he was alone. But then Psalm 73, verse 17 said, Until I came to the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And then further in 73, 23 through 24, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will lead me and afterward take me in glory. This came to him through fellowship. Be with God's people. The basic reason is future hope transforms your present life. I'm sure you're thinking about this verse all morning. First John 3, 2 through 3 says this. Beloved, now we are God's children. And it has not yet been manifested what we will be. We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Your spiritual vision is important. How is your vision? What is coming in the way of you and your vision? Once again, you will never be of any earthly good unless you are truly heavenly minded. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for your word that corrects us where we err and lifts us where we fail. Help us to hope in Christ. Use your word to reform and refine and transform our thinking that our lives may be transformed and reformed by it. We pray all this in his name. Amen.